Welcome back to the Spartan Pride Podcast here on the Fans First Sports Network. Jonathan Shop here with you, continuing a look back at 2013. Chase It Again is the name of the series on the Spartan Pride Substack. What we're doing there is reposting the articles that I wrote for Spartan Nation back in 2013. That series ran for years and years. You know it as the outlook moving forward. And what Michigan State was doing was looking forward pretty good after the victory over Indiana to bring that football team up to 5-1, and one, preparing for a very bad Purdue football team at the beginning of yet another era of Purdue football. It's ironic that we talk about that today because as we sit here getting ready for 2023, Purdue is in the same spot again. Jeff Brom had a lot of success at Purdue. Jeff Brom like so many folks, has uh, lived life and had an experience uh, different stuff over the last number of years. So Jeff Brom decides to pack his bags and go home to Louisville to coach the rest of his career. I don't think anyone can have a real big issue with that, but we'll talk more about that when we do a season preview team by team in the Big Ten Conference. That's coming in August. Before we get there, we're going to chop on some more of these games for Michigan State as we look back at 2013. We're going to chase it again, talk about the outlook moving forward for Purdue and a Purdue football game that Michigan State would go on to win in a remarkably, eh, not too memorable fashion, 14 to nothing. That was October 19th, 2013. Seems like a long time ago. I got a feeling some of the folks listening or checking this thing out were just children. If you were, let me give you a heads up as you're entering your whatever year of school. It goes fast, and it doesn't slow down from there. Spartan Pride Podcast, we're going to take a look at that 2013 Purdue game right here on the Fans First Sports Network. As I look back at this article, I actually did not realize I was so high on the week win before over Indiana. I wrote... Spartans played better against Indiana than they had at any point since the Outback Bowl comeback win over Georgia. While Indiana wasn't a good team, it forced MSU to score points, and the Spartans won all three phases of the game. Now it looked like Michigan State football was back on track, and they were going to make a run at a double-digit victory total, bouncing back, erasing 2012, picking up the momentum that the Mark D'Antonio era had felt uh, during the latter stages of the Kirk Cousins run. So this was looking good, and what we were looking for in this football game against Purdue was the foot on the gas. Purdue was not good. They were trying to reboot again. Now let's give Petey Purdue some credit, because it's been a rough number of years for Petey Purdue when it comes to basketball. A lot of face plants on a national level, a lot of expectations that were not reached, and there will be more this fall as Matt Painter and company try to field their team. There will also be another brand new region or brand new edition of Purdue football. Now, back in 2013, it was Daryl Hazel that was uh, taken over in West Lafayette trying to do something, trying to find some magic. And there was magic at Purdue. Young people, you may not be old enough to remember, but when Cowboy Joe Killer came to Purdue, he had a schematic advantage. He bought the spread offense. He found a quarterback from Texas named Drew Brees, and the rest was history. Purdue, Purdue, we got it going. Purdue got to the Rose Bowl. Brees goes on to become one of the better quarterbacks in NFL history. Since then, 
Since 2008, when Tiller retired, Purdue had gone 27 and 41. That was the record they were standing on before they took on Michigan State in 2013. The week before, they lost 44 to 7 to Nebraska. They had given up 40 and 3 out of the last six games or three of the first six games in the Hazel era. So it should have got ugly at Spartan Stadium. Michigan State was expected to run it all up, and I was looking for them to do that because this was a team sitting to just be knocked off. And Michigan State wanted to clean things up and wanted to go ahead and get beyond Purdue and get ready for the uh, deeper part of the schedule, which was definitely on the back end. Michigan State in 2013 had Indiana, Purdue, and Illinois in a row. We were looking for... Michigan State to put the foot on the gas and keep it on there the whole time and also look at it taking a first-half knockout of Purdue. Ironically enough, that would not happen. And arguably, Daryl Hazel did a better job of preparing for Michigan State football teams than any other coach at Purdue during the Mark D'Antonio era. That's what we were looking at at that point. That's exactly how it looked. A lot of excitement at how Michigan State was able to do what they needed to do against Indiana and looking for them to go flatten Purdue. Well, that did not happen. Before we get to that game, we're going to go into a couple more details right here on the Spartan Pride Podcast, part of the Fans First Sports Network. So we look back at what the offense was doing at that point. There was a strange, I forgot about this, Cook asked to throw three straight times from MSU's three-yard line the week prior to Indiana. There were still some hiccups going on on the offensive side of the ball early in Indiana, but it started coming alive and coming together during that time. Delton Williams was a power back that was getting featured. And um, of course, uh, Jeremy Langford was really, his coming out party was probably that Indiana game when he scored as many times as he did. So Michigan State was looking for a cleaner offense, looking to put the ball in the playmaker's hands, in position to do something. And some of the work that Jim Bowman was doing, uh, who had returned to Michigan State, was starting to show up by the second half of Indiana. Obviously, it wasn't just that Langford had a big day. It's that Michigan State could have had two guys with 100-yard days. And that's what people were looking for and hoping against Purdue. I don't, and I did not write that, hey, this is a game a candidate for a first-half knockout. You wouldn't write that very often unless it really was, and that's what it looked like uh, during the week building up to Purdue, and the game did not go that way. Michigan State was still paying the price a little bit for Connor Cook's uh, development that was needed. There were some bumps. There were some growing pains, but by this point in the season, it was very clear that Michigan State was going to go with Connor Cook, and what a great decision that would, of course, turn out to be. It was also... A point in time where some receivers were starting to make their way. Tony Lippett would come on and have an amazing run at Michigan State. We're going to talk about him big time when we talk about this Purdue game in just a minute. The Michigan State offensive line had really begun to step out, if you will. We talked about the injuries to Travis Jackson and Fofanoti that really sunk the 2012 team. Well, they kind of started to pay off at this point in 13 as Michigan State had about seven or eight guys that could play and the offensive line was really starting to take shape. Uh, The defense had already taken shape, but boy, were they tested against a good Indiana team. You know, 
that Indiana team easily scored 25 points, not necessarily be a bad day for the defense. The defense was tested by Indiana, and they knew that would not be the case against Purdue. It would not. Outside of a couple big plays against Indiana, the defense did what it had to do, and the expectation was clear. I remember Coach Hazel talking about that. He said the whole football team plays behind that defense that they have at Michigan State, and that was true. Purdue came into that game 121st in points for, 119th in rushing yards, and they did not have a good outlook offensively. The defense for Michigan State absolutely was looking for a shutout, and guess what? They got it. They got it indeed. Special teams still working. Not busy against Indiana, not a factor, but as you watch teams this year, as you watch teams building into their season, <clears throat> keep in mind that special teams have to get plays, have to get action. So you may see a kick at the end of a quarter or a half that may not seem to mean much, but you may look back a couple weeks later before a big game and realize, oh, this kicker hasn't kicked a field goal in three weeks. That's a problem. Michigan State under Mark D'Antonio did a good job at trying to keep guys active, and a lot of times they did so through special teams. It was more of a benefit than a knock. And certainly the development of R.J. Shelton, for example, it came out of special teams. What an unbelievable NFL speed, multi-position, multi-talented player Shelton was. He just starts to peek his head out early in his Spartan career in 2013 on the Spartan special teams. That's what we were looking at going into a game with Purdue. Looking back at perhaps another thought section, I mentioned the idea that, and it's still an issue out there, whether the NFLPA is going to take blood tests and really part of the problem with player safety, head injuries, etc. Not so much the hits and the helmets and this and that, and thankfully things have gotten better in 10 years, but the size of the humans crashing into each other. So I still think there's a really good argument to test as effectively and aggressively as possible to keep out performance-enhancing steroids, performance-enhancing drugs, in-season, out-of-season, because what was happening in baseball, and it still looks different today, is the size of the player is not what it once was. We're actually seeing heavy players in baseball again, which, by the way, is a much better sport with the pitch clock. But back then, the NFL was getting a little wild, it's getting a little oversized, it's getting a little concerned, and there was pushback on what kind of testing they should do. I echo today that the testing in the NFL level should be the best and possibly most accurate it can be because it's in everybody's best interest for player safety and for the game that they do not have anything like that in their sport. I assume the colleges have done a pretty good job at that, but they obviously got to continue to sharpen the sword, especially when you talk about this new era of semi-pro or professional college football, whatever this ends up to be called, the strange series of events that have evolved the sport to what it is today. But back 10 years ago, I could tell you this one actually Michigan State did listen to. They didn't have the flat mat helmets back then and it would show up on the tv as looking weird sometimes today alabama and the kansas city chiefs i think are the two best known teams that do not have the matte look the spartans have had the matte look which looks phenomenal on hd tvs uh i think since uh the middle 20 teens so 
At this point, it was obvious that they needed to do something. It was looking almost purple in some angles on the TV. It's ironic to see that now because the matte finish is the standard on helmets across the country, but there's still two superpowers in Alabama and, of course, the Kansas City Chiefs that do not go that way. Almost every other major college team does. For example, Michigan, Notre Dame, they were a little later to convert. Texas A&M, I think, was the first. Almost all of them these days are flat, matte finishes, so you can see them and they look good and they look their true color on your TV. And um, it's still the case that the most famous college football game in the history of the sport is the 10-10 tie. It will always be the 10-10 tie. The Rocket game was probably the best in Spartan Stadium history, as we talked about last week. But as we celebrate the Spartan Stadium anniversary this year, the Rocket game will go down as probably a really solid candidate for number two. But make no mistake, and I don't think anybody out there has or will, the 10-10 tie between Michigan State and Notre Dame remains the most famous game in college football history, remains the most watched and attended game in college football history relative to its audience. It's so much bigger than the sport. It's one of the very few games that transcends the sport. Now, in my lifetime, the best game I think I've seen was the Southern Cal-Texas national title game. That was really tremendous and beyond belief. Was it as good or dramatic as the Rocket game? Probably not, although I'd have to watch that one again. Of course, it was on a bigger stage. There are probably more NFL Hall of Famers played in the Wisconsin and Michigan State game, of course, with Wilson and Cousins. But that game was unbelievable. And it doesn't even come close to touching the magnitude of the 10-10 tie in 1966 between Michigan State and Notre Dame. It's always worth mentioning a game when we're talking Spartan football, no matter the year. It was the same in 2013 as it will be in 2033. The chances of another game becoming more important to college football than that 10-10 tie are about the same chances as... uh, me jumping out there on the golf tour and winning the U.S. Open. Or even better yet, the British Open. <laughs> it's not going to happen. The British Open's probably going on right now or it's about to kick off, depending on where you're listening from, in July. Spartan Pride Podcast, part of the Fans First Sports Network. We're back on track to wrap up the Spartans' 14-0 win over Purdue right here. So the Spartans come into the game with Purdue in 2013 looking for a first-half knockout, just looking to hammer Purdue, and it does not happen. The big play in the game, Danica Salen returns a fumble 45 yards for a touchdown. That was finally a score on the board in the second quarter, and Michigan State adds one more to win a very sleepy 14-0 ball game with two very exciting plays. Allen's fumble return, and then, of course... The Tony Lippett five-yard touchdown pass to Ander Greikert on the trick play. Uh, Michigan State didn't make it past the 32-yard line of Purdue until the fourth quarter. So credit, Purdue, and this will happen again in the Daryl Hazel era, for knowing how to stop Michigan State and having a lot of effectiveness to do so, regardless of their less-than-talented football teams and less-than-stocked rosters. But Purdue hung around 7-0 at half. 
Only 14 nothing on the board. The game was probably a lot closer than it looked, but Purdue just did not have the athletes, and Michigan State just grounded out. Mike Sadler was a star, landing it three times inside the 10-yard line. So although it was a 14-0 win, it looked kind of sleepy. It was more like a 14-point win, if you will. The game was never really in doubt after the Allen fumble return and, of course, put away with Tony Lippett's touchdown pass. Tony Lippett would go on to have an incredible run as Michigan State's lead wide receiver, but some forget he played quarterback in high school. He had played cornerback at uh, Michigan State, played quarterback during scout teamworks during his redshirt year, and he was a force to be reckoned with on his way to an NFL career. Michigan State won the turnover battle 2-0, held Purdue to just 66 yards rushing and 226 of offense. A 14-0 win got Michigan State back to bowl eligibility, which is something I had written about in one of the perhaps uh, perhaps another thought sections uh, right around this time. Because when Michigan State welcomed Mark D'Antonio back, you know, it had been nine years since Nick Saban had got Michigan State football to national relevance, and off track it went from there for a number of reasons and bad breaks, etc. The bottom line is they didn't win. It took D'Antonio not too long to get it back on track and steer it back to the point where a bowl game was an expectation and a reality. It was 2013, but I tell you today, then it's true today as it was true then. It was hard to convey just how valuable and how much good Mark D'Antonio and staff had done to Michigan State, where they're knocking out bowl eligibility in week seven. That did not seem to be on the table for Spartan football after Nick Saban left. It did not seem to be on the table during the first year or two of Michigan State under Mark D'Antonio. It wasn't clear that he could get the program to that point that they would be, oh, we're just bowl eligible again in week seven. A lot of things were not apparent to Spartan Nation as they watched Michigan State wrap up Purdue 14-0 and go to 6-1 and and clinch bowl eligibility. A lot of really big things were on tap for Michigan State football that we're going to talk about next when we get back together on the Spartan Pride podcast and talk about the game on the Spartans 2013 schedule that I believe sent this season into fifth gear. That, of course, a road win at Illinois. That wraps up this one. We have looked back. We've chased it again, looking back at the 2013 Michigan State football Spartans and their 14-0 win over Purdue. I'm Jonathan Shop. This is the Spartan Pride Podcast. We will see you here again soon on the Fans First Sports Network.